Good to see you for the first time in our worship gathering in 2018. Uh, my name is Adam. I'm a pastor here, and I'm glad to see you. Um, would you do me a favor and turn to Luke chapter 9? Uh, it's going to be on the screen, but if you want to follow along, there's a Bible in front of you. Maybe some of you got it on your phone. It's in the New Testament, that second half of the book, Luke chapter 9. We'll be there in just a minute. But first, I want to ask you a question. What is a Christian? Okay? Now, you say, dude, I'm in a church. I know what a Christian is. Well, okay. But take your definition that sounds like a Sunday school answer and just simplify it. Just kind of cram it down, brass tacks, bare minimum, like give me a business card version of what is a Christian. Okay? You kind of got a definition? We're not going to do a call and response this time. Just want you to think through it, okay? Now, we're going to find an answer or two, perhaps, hidden here in a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Disciple is just a fancy church word for an apprentice. If you want to learn how to be a blacksmith, you got to apprentice to a blacksmith to learn how to form and shape metal. A disciple is an apprentice of Jesus that is going to learn how to be like Jesus. So Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples or apprentices, and he's going to help give us an answer as to what a Christian is. You with me? Let's read together. Well, I'll just read it and y'all can listen. <laughs> Luke chapter 9, we're going to read this whole conversation, verses 18 to 27. There's a lot here but we don't have a whole lot of time, so we're just trying to hit the highlights together in our moments in this text. You ready? Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets from long ago has come back to life. But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Then Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anybody. And he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to all of them, So whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say in this church, thanks be to God. So... What is a Christian? Perhaps your definition sounds a little something like this. A Christian is somebody who says, Jesus 
you are my king, or Jesus, you are my Lord. Did anybody's definition have some kind of confession or profession of who Jesus is? You can do a show of hands, right? A Christian is somebody who says, hey, Jesus, you're it, okay? How about this second piece? Not only is a Christian somebody who says, Jesus, you're my Lord or you're my king, there's somebody that lives like it's true, okay? How many of you, by show of hands, had a definition that says, it ain't just about what you believe, it's about how you live, Anybody have a living definition? I'll say it this way. In light of this conversation we just read, I'll venture this answer. You start by answering Jesus' question that he asks here, and then you live by accepting Jesus' invitation. Okay? A Christian is somebody who, when asked or reads the Bible, or hears a preacher like me say, yo, Jesus, 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 they hear a question that says, who is Jesus anyway? I've heard about him from my grandma. I've seen some movies about him, because it feels like there's one every year now. But who do you say I am? Is he a good moral teacher? Well, If you really look at the words that Jesus said, he didn't really teach hardly anything about morals. So that's just a nice thing that people like to say to pretend they're spiritual, that they love Jesus. But the truth is he talks very little about morals. What Jesus talks about is a whole new way of living in light of God's government, the kingdom. And it looks so different from the world. So his morals don't make a lick of sense unless you answer the question, who do you say I am? Because Jesus' teachings only make sense if you say, you're some kind of king or lord. I have no box for you, but you are beautiful and powerful, and there's something about you that makes me want to get on board with what you are doing. So you have to answer this question, who is Jesus? Is he just a moral teacher? Is he just some historical figure? Is he just some Santa Claus that we like to tell our kids about to make them less afraid of death and all the scary things in the world? Or is he a king? Or Peter says, God's Messiah. Have you heard of that word, Messiah? Messiah is a Hebrew word. The first half of the Bible is written in Hebrew. Messiah is a word that means anointed king. It means a promised and special and something different and powerful. The chosen one king. So you got to answer this question. Is he a king And then finally, you live by accepting Jesus' invitation. Look with me in that Bible. Did you see an invitation that Jesus gave to his disciples after they got the A plus as to who he is? He says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, what? A hard thing and a harder thing and a very confusing thing. Is that what you read? That's what I see in verse 23. He says to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, we're going to talk about that verse, verse 23, for the remainder of our time. But before we get there, I want to put it into the context of five core practices that the pastors of this church feel like we need to live into and focus on in 2018. These aren't a magic formula for successful living in life. 
These are simply ways of bringing some focus and intentionality to our mission together. So we're going to spend the first five weeks of this year in our worship gatherings unpacking and unloading these five core practices we're presenting to you. And they are these. The first one is follow Jesus. I hope you would have guessed that by now. It's been on the screen. And we're talking about Jesus' invitation to deny, take up a cross, and follow him. The second core practice is love neighbor. We'll talk about that next week, Lord willing. Then the third week, we'll talk about our third core practice, which is grow disciples. And then the fourth is create space. And that's basically making time for God and others. And then our fifth core practice we're presenting to you is to bring peace. Now, we did not invent any of these things. I wish we had. But what we're doing is simply highlighting and naming what we see in the words and life of Jesus and the first, very first church. We see the church doing these kinds of things. So what we're doing is just putting what we're supposed to be doing into some nifty little phrases that we hope we can remember in order that we can live these in our everyday lives. You might say that these are like some New Year's resolutions for our church. But I hope that they're less like resolutions we break and more like reminders to keep us going on our mission together. So another question. How many of us made New Year's resolutions for 2018? No shame. I've done it. We've done it. Kathy and Sid got their three on repeat. Eat better, exercise. Was that it? Lose weight. All kind of pushing toward the same goal. I think you guys look great, but you do you. How many of you made New Year's resolutions? Okay, here's the bad news, and you know probably what I'm about to say. A study posted recently in the New York Times now says by January 8th, 25% of New Year's resolutions have already been abandoned. But good news, the good news is today's January 6th, So you got 48 hours to get your butts in gear and keep it going. Why is it so hard to keep our resolutions? It's so funny how the calendar rolls over and we just got this new start, new vision, new, 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 yes. But if you're like me, when I make New Year's resolutions, I find that I really don't have as much self-discipline and willpower as I had hoped. My willpower and self-discipline looks a lot like it does in the new year as it did in the old year because I think a second reason why we struggle to keep our resolutions is because really when we think about it it's just hard to break the ingrained habits that we've spent years forming and shaping right I think one of the reasons why we don't have as much success is because maybe we just go at it alone how many of you have gotten a gym membership But you had some friend that was like, dude, get up. We're going to the gym. Let's go. And you're like, oh, I don't want to. When I started working out, the only time I worked out, I had two of my friends in college that would beat on my dorm room door and say, get up. I'm like, no, I'm not here. (laughs) Then they'd they'd go in through like my sweet mate's door and then they'd drag me out of bed and they'd carry me to the gym because they had been going to the gym so they're stronger than me. How about a diet? It's really hard to have a good diet when your roommate or spouse is eating jack-in-the-box tacos all night at 10 o'clock with their Oreo cookie shake. 
The only time we've had success, Amy and I in our diet, we had some doctors tell us early in our marriage, hey, you might want to think about cutting out processed foods. They were telling this to Amy. And I was like, yeah, good luck, girl. And I was like eating a jack-in-the-box taco as I was doing it. And she said, look, dude, I can't come home and you're drinking an Oreo milkshake if I'm supposed to eat kale. And so what we finally ended up doing was we said, listen, together we're going to go in, all in, and we did a whole food vegan diet. Because basically the doctors were like, look, you just got to kind of start ground zero. And so basically if it didn't grow up from the ground, we wouldn't eat it. If we couldn't pronounce it from the ingredient list, we wouldn't eat it. And I went to a doctor like the documentary supersized me. And I said, hey, give me a full rundown. He's like, dude, your blood pressure's high. You could do this. Within a month, I came back. And I just, like, I had lost a lot of weight. I felt better, sleeping better, like sleeping better. Everything was good. And it's because when I would try to veer off into Taco Bell drive through Amy would say, don't. We, got, we can do this. Let's do it together. And I said, thank you. You're right. And then I'd go home and eat a black bean and veggie <laughs> corn tortilla I'm having, I'm having some, some bad thoughts. We did this for 18 months. We did it for 18 months because we did it together. Why do I tell you this story? Because I believe as the neighborhood church, if we are going to resolve to be or do anything in our life with God, we've got to do it together. In the end of our service, we're going to pass out a document called a partnership agreement. In our church, how we do membership is we have these agreements every year. We used to call them member covenants. Now they're going to look a lot different if you've been around our church than they have in the past. And we've really tried to simplify it and make it less about what we think and more about how what we think involves our life and our practice. This is way more about how you live rather than just what you think and check a box and agree with. Because what we believe is that the Christian life is not just something to be believed, but to be lived. And we believe that the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is king and we need to live with him, it calls us to two relationships. A relationship with God and a relationship with God's people, which is why we're here. And why we show up in between our worship gatherings to encourage one another to not eat jack-in-the-box tacos of a spiritual sense. We do this together. And our mission for the neighborhood church is to follow Jesus together. And so we're asking for you to take these agreements that will be available down this hallway before you head out. To review this, to pray through it, and to say, you know what? This is an affirmation of my relationship with God that I'm saying, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus to live like Jesus. But it's also my affirmation to do it. Look. In the particularity of this church, on this street, for these people, in this community, because in your family and in your workplace and in your sphere of influence with your friends, God is sending you to make a difference in this world. And you can't do it alone. You need to be formed and shaped and equipped and encouraged by other relationships with Christians. One of the travesties of church life in Dallas is we feel like church should just be like going to a movie where you can pick a time and you can go to a building and you can sit in a full room with a bunch of other people and you can look at something and you can sing along or you can hear a talk and it's, oh, it's nice and it makes you feel a certain way. You can laugh, you can cry, you can all this. 
And then you get up and you file out of the movie theater because if you're like me, I don't talk to anybody in a movie theater. And I may as well have just listened to something or watched something on TV because ultimately it's only a half measure because God designed for us not just to consume and to experience, but to actually flesh it out and put this stuff into practice. Because if you read the New Testament, it's saying things like, hey, bear with one another. What does that mean? Guess what? I understand that you're not just going to a movie. You've got to actually sit down and talk with these people and serve the poor with these people. And these people are not that great. So guess what? Here's an opportunity to deny yourself because what I want to say to this person is, shoot, you don't know me. Who do you think you are? But I'm going to deny myself. And when I deny myself, that's difficult. So it's like I'm taking on a cross and sacrificing myself for the sake of another person, which is what Jesus did. And I find that in that little death, in that little moment, with a real life person in my real actual life, I find that while difficult, if I follow Jesus on the other side of that little death, I find that there is more peace and love and life and light in this moment, in this space, a little bit of heaven, the kingdom of God breaking through onto this little patch of earth in Wiley, Texas. And day after day after day of real life relationships in your real everyday ordinary life, you can commit to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, And then follow Jesus. Because the context of the Christian life is not an academy, is not a classroom, is not a doctrinal statement. Those things are important and good because they inform how we're supposed to go and now do it. But what good does it make for the people that don't have clothes warm enough to sleep on the streets when it's 20 degrees this week? What good is our thoughts and vibes If we're not going and being the hands and feet of Jesus. What good is it for that relationship that is on the brink in your family and friend network. If you're not praying and begging God and checking in and encouraging and saying it's going to be all right, Just keep making the good choice. It's got to be this rhythm of thinking and doing. And we've got to do it together. We've got to follow Jesus together. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, here's what we mean with our core practice, follow Jesus. Everything stems from this. And you're going to see it in your partner agreement. But here is what we mean. We commit to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, how to live like Jesus in our everyday life. Nod your head if that has sounded familiar to you. In our church, we say, what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it looks like Peter and John and James and Thaddeus and all these people that kicked it with Jesus, they ate with him. They listened and heard him teach. But then after he left the crowds, they followed him to wherever he was staying, and they laughed with Jesus, like you laugh with your friends. And they prayed with Jesus to the same Father. 
And then they got up and they saw sick people and they visited them. They saw Jesus bend over and touch them. And the kingdom of God breaks in. And all of a sudden, the atmosphere is changed and they see it. And then Jesus says, but look, dude, you can go and do it too. And so Peter and John, they get up and they go out and they're like, "Uh, um, demon, uh, uh, get out of here in the name of Jesus. And guess what? Evil flees. And they go, Jesus, you'll never believe this. We did what you did like three days ago on Tuesday at three o'clock. Remember that dude? He was naked and foaming at the mouth and he was wild and we were freaking out. Dude, because like Matthew was like almost peeing his pants. He was freaked out. We saw you do this and then we went and we did the same thing. Why? Because they went and they saw what Jesus was doing. So let's unpack this. What does it mean to be with Jesus when we can't see Jesus like all these disciples did? Well, what was Jesus doing before this conversation? It's in verse 18 if you still got your Bible open. He was what? Praying in private. I think they saw Jesus after Jesus had just done a, just done a greatest hit. He had fed 5,000 plus people. And rather than go and get the crown... In John's gospel, after they fed 5,000, it says they wanted to force him to be king. Because wouldn't you want a king who could feed you three squares a day? But Jesus said, no, I'm good. And he goes back to a private place as if to recharge and refuel his batteries with the Father. And do you think the disciples saw that and never prayed again? I bet you they said, if Jesus has to, we might have to. And so what does it mean to be with Jesus when we don't see Jesus? We do what Jesus did, and we try to be in stillness and create a little bit of space and say, I can't see you, help me. I don't know what to do, help me. I don't like reading 20 pages of the Bible every day, help me with one paragraph. I don't like sitting in stillness, it feels uncomfortable, and I don't hear you, help me. And maybe you give him one minute and one paragraph and it's denying yourself and it's taking up a cross, but you're trying to follow him. And then who knows what six months and eight months and six years, it may look like this. No, 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 let me back up. It's gonna look like this. But you're showing up because he will show up. Well, it didn't feel good on Monday and it wasn't like a light beam. That's fine, guess what? It wasn't for these people either. We get the highlights. But to be with Jesus is where it begins. Luke records several times Jesus' habit of private prayer. And look, hear me. It is almost always in connection with one of his awesome and powerful works of the kingdom. So hear me very carefully. If you hear me and think, I've got to go do a bunch of God tasks for 2018, I've got to step up my game for how much money I give and time I spend and things and words I pray and the poor I love, and you go out and do some good things, you will burn out if you don't come back and follow Jesus' rhythm of work and rest, work and rest. And here's the problem. 
Because what I love to do on my days off is binge Netflix or scroll on my phone. And so he even has to teach me and rest because I want to just veg and disengage. So what's a healthy way of vegging and disengaging? Because we can get both ends wrong. But they've seen this rhythm. And the disciples, I love this. Look, his disciples, where were they? They were with him. So then Jesus says, amen, he gets up, he comes back to his disciples and he says, hey, I got a question. Remember those thousands of people we just saw? What was the talk around town as to who I am that just created a golden corral buffet of fish and bread? Did they call me furs or what? Amy doesn't like furs. I wish she liked furs. We got a nice one on 635. What do they say? They say John or Elijah or the prophet. Would you write down Malachi 4, 5 to 6? Nobody's writing. We just do it on our phone. Make a note to remember to look at Malachi 4, 5 and 6. It's the last two verses of the Old Testament in our Bible. And they talk about a prophet that's going to come before the king comes. So they had all of these expectations as to what this king was going to look like. And they thought that Jesus was somebody that was pointing to the king. Because John was a prophet. Elijah was a prophet. And some old prophet that they referenced was a prophet. Are you with me? Hello? They thought that Jesus was someone pointing to the day that God's kingdom would come. But then he said, hey... That's fine. What about you? And this is the question you underline and highlight in your Bible because at any given point in your life, this question may be just as important then as it was when you first said yes to Jesus. Because we get all kinds of expectations wrapped around who we think Jesus ought to be. Hello? Who do you say I am. This has been a question that's floated the first several chapters of Luke. And then Peter says, You are not just the one to which the prophets, you're not just a prophet pointing. You're the one to which the prophets point. He says, You are God's Messiah. You are God's anointed king. And so here's the trick. If it's a prophet that Jesus is, you should probably pay attention. But if he's a king, you should probably get on board with his agenda. Which is why, if you look at the very next passage, Jesus says the super confusing thing of this. Okay, you're right, but don't tell anybody. Because I told you earlier, in John's gospel, they record the same story of feeding the 5,000. And John says, oh yeah, Luke didn't tell you? Man, all these people bum-rushed him, and they said, king, 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 Jesus, 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 golden corral, golden corral. But also in Luke's gospel, in Luke 4... He started saying, I'm the one who's the king that's come to bring God's favor and good news to the poor and peace. And then he starts telling stories about this person who's not a Jew, this person who's not a Jew, these people who are marginalized, these people who are left out. And the Jewish audience said, nope, nope, nope. No, these people, those people, those, none of them are allowed And in Luke's 
Gospel, chapter 4, when Jesus preaches his first sermon, they want to kill him. He says, don't tell anybody because they're going to get so messed up in their heads about who I ought to be. So then he says this, because what God has called me to be is this one who is suffering and rejected by all the religious gatekeepers and I'm going to be killed. And then Peter goes, wait, what? I need to find a new boss. You've got to relearn what greatness looks like if you're a follower of Jesus. Because it ain't what you see on Instagram all the time. You've got to relearn what it looks like to gain life and the world. Because it's not what the CEO's look like and if you want to say I'm crazy and to be a Christian is to live your best life now always and drive the best car now I'm afraid we're not reading the same New Testament because if Jesus can't avoid suffering and dying and being rejected why should we be so surprised when we suffer and are rejected and face death not just in the middle east but in the relationships that just can't seem to get right in garland because we are trying to learn what it means to follow a king who's crucified and so Jesus gives us the invitation To be with him in order to learn from him that to be a Christian is to deny yourself and take up a cross because on the other side of the cross is life. So then that's where we get to that third piece. How do we live like Jesus? The rinse and repeat cycle of the disciple is what we've been saying. To deny yourself Take up your cross and then follow Jesus. If you've ever read the back of the shampoo thing, how many people, another show of hands, tonight is poll night. Who lathers? Who rinses? Who repeats? Okay, are you serious, Robert? This makes sense. No offense, Robert. April cuts hair. That makes sense. Three people repeat. Lynette repeats. Four. The shampoo cycle of a disciple is to deny themselves, die to themselves, and follow Jesus. This is not a one and done reality. In my family of four, with Emma and Nora, Amy and I have some parenting mantras. One of them is listen and obey. One of them is be kind and loving, okay? Now, I would have loved it if my five and a half and three and a half year old would have heard that four years ago and said, got it. And they are always kind and loving. (laughs) I would have so loved it if they would just stink and listen and then do what I say. Jesus has a listen and obey In Luke chapter 6 and Luke chapter 8, he says, what good is it if you hear what I say and then don't live it? I believe that this is a repeat cycle because the kingdom of self is heavily guarded territory, says Eugene Peterson. 
It is hard to die to the hurts and hang-ups and habits that have licked us for a decade. But the more you do this, the more you find His power and presence meets you and grows you and forms you. And then, like Jesus said, it's not just the suffering and rejecting and killing. He says, then the Son of Man will be what? Raised on the third day. Because to follow Jesus is not just to follow him in death. To follow Jesus is to walk with him in new life. This is the trick. Because for a long time it feels like dying. Until you realize that it is living. You never thought you could do it before. Because the Jack in the Box tacos were just so good. But with the strength of the Holy Spirit Jesus sent, he says, the same power, the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power at work in you. And that relationship looks dead on Holy Saturday. Pray and follow until Sunday. That addiction and and hang up looks dead in the grave on Saturday. But pray and do it with other people and get help together because Sunday can come just like it did for Jesus. And this is the trick. We don't just be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus. We do it in our everyday life. Tish Harrison Warren wrote a book last year called Liturgy of the Ordinary. Amy's been reading it, and I haven't read all of it, but the first chapter is almost worth just getting the book. I can't vouch for the rest of it because I haven't read it, but look what she says. Christ didn't redeem my life theoretically or abstractly. The life I dreamed of living or the life I think I ideally should be living. He knew I'd be in today as it is, my home where it stands, in my relationships with their specific beauty and brokenness, and in my particular sins and struggles. She keeps going. God is forming us into a new people. And the place of that formation, I love this, is in the small moments of today. We want Jesus to save us in all the nice theological Sunday school ways. But guess what life he saved? The one you're living. She keeps going. Today is the proving ground of what I believe and of whom I worship. At the beginning of this talk, I asked you, what is a Christian? And I said, it's somebody who's answered the question of Jesus, right? Who do you say I am? Jesus, you're my king. And then they what? They go out and live like it's true. She says, today is the proving ground of what I believe and of whom I worship. Not December 2018, the new and improved you. Today is the day to deny yourself, to take up your cross daily, And follow Jesus. I scribbled this down before I read this chapter that said it a lot better than I did.
but I'll offer this thought to you. There is no such thing as my Christian life or my spiritual life. There is only my life. Every day I have the choice to live from my true identity as a citizen of God's kingdom. As I follow Jesus in my life right now just as it is or not. Because if you're like me, I want to compartmentalize my neighborhood church life, my pastor life, my husband life, my dad life, my friend life, my son life, my cousin life, my whatever life. But Jesus says, no, 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 I just want all of it. I want to be with you when you're walking and washing dishes and listening to somebody and working with somebody and doing that thing that you don't want to be doing but you got to be doing. I can meet you in that space. And when you're doing the thing I don't want you to do because it's killing you, I'm there and I can redeem it if you would call to me and seek me. And so one tool as we close that I would love to leave with you And I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it because I want to wrap up. But it's self-explanatory on this sheet right here. It's called a rhythm of life. And it's simply a tool to write down a plan for arranging your life in order to be formed by God into the image of Jesus for the sake of others. That's a quote from Robert Mulholland. And it's a way of just bringing our intentions to deny ourselves, to take up a cross, and follow Jesus. Because when Jesus said, if you would just hold on and not be ashamed of me, I won't be ashamed of you. And if you would just hold on, he says, you won't die before you see the kingdom. You'll see the kingdom in this life. You know what he meant? He meant for Peter and the other guys One day, they're going to wake up and get dressed, and they're going to see Jesus hung on a cross. And they're going to think, there is no way that this is the kingdom, because it looks like death. And they're going to go home, shaking their heads, saying, what did we just see? Because I thought he was God's king. And they're going to wake up on Saturday, on the Sabbath, and rest, and eat breakfast, and look around at their friends with tears in their eyes, shocked and saying, what on earth just happened yesterday? And then they're going to wake up on Sunday and they heard about some women who are going to go down to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body. But then they hear this wild story about how even when it looked like death, God raised Jesus from the dead. And then little by little, Peter denies himself. He takes up a cross too and he follows Jesus And says, if he left the grave behind him, so will I. And if he asks me to follow him today, so will I. Let's pray. Father, we are so imperfect, it's crazy. Even our intentions and wishes that we'll put on this worksheet are almost too big for our britches. Would you meet us in your grace? right where we are, not who we think we ought to be? And would you give us the courage to say yes to you today? There's only once that we cross over from death to life. But then it's every day that we do the little deaths that remind us whose we are. Sons and daughters of a father, adopted now 
never kicked out, never to be snatched from the hand. So would you help us remember that even when we blow it, you're right there with us, ready to pick us up. So would we turn back to you in 2018 and set off on a journey with others, even when it looks like death, to find life on the other side. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, God's Messiah. Amen. May the God who gave us this year and the Savior who walks at our side each day and the Spirit who fills us with life abundant bless the coming year with peace and hope and joy. Amen. Go in peace.